Welcome to Stop and Talk, a podcast about connection and building a more vibrant region together through creativity, health, and community. This is your host, Grant Oliphant, the CEO of the Conrad Prebis Foundation. Thanks for joining us. On this episode of Stop and Talk, we welcome Kara Desert, CEO of the San Diego LGBT Community Center. The center is one of the largest and most vibrant LGBTQ plus community centers in the nation. Kara has devoted her career to advancing social justice with a special focus on the LGBTQ community. She has served as an attorney advocate, and now is the leader of an organization that works with more than 115 staff and over 1,200 community volunteers to promote LGBTQ health, wellness, and human rights. Most recently, CARA led the center in expanding its housing services to include the first shelter in San Diego County for LGBTQ youth. In this episode, we will talk about a more robust vision for youth inclusion, and how the center builds belonging into the DNA of their programs, and how the rest of us can do so as well. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Kara, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to have this conversation. And I do want to brag a moment that this is your first podcast. It is. And I'm very excited. Awesome. (laughs) So I'm delighted that we get to be your first. Listen, I want to just um, dive into the work you're doing and then we'll go back and talk a little bit more about your story. But I want to talk about the center, which is one of the largest LGBTQ centers in the country. Um, And let's just dive into what has you excited at the moment. What are the issues that you're focusing on? Yeah, the one of the things that I'm most excited about is that we know that LGBTQ youth are twice as likely Mm -hmm. to experience homelessness And so we need more services here in San Diego with our housing crisis for all youth, but we also need LGBTQ-specific interventions into this crisis. Mm -hmm. And the center's been working for years. We started with a four-bed small shelter. We had an advocacy campaign with the city of San Diego to ask for $1.5 million in funding to start the first major LGBTQ youth shelter and wellness center. Um, We won that fight. We're at an interview site that's about 25 beds and it will be 45 beds by the new year and I am so excited mm-hmm. about this program and its ability to change the lives of LGBTQ youth who are experiencing homelessness in San Diego. Yeah. I have heard from so many people about your passion for the work and you just illustrated why people talk about you the way that they do. Uh, you you clearly have a sense of, of mission around helping young people who are, tell us a little bit about why this is such an extraordinary phenomenon in the LGBTQ community. I think the center is a special place. It's our mission to find a place where everybody belongs, Mm. where people feel valued, Mm. and where you can come for help, where you can come regain hope, and where you can also find your community. And so it's not just about crisis, it's moving along that journey all the way to empowerment 
right now the LGBTQ community is under attack. Mm -hmm. For the first time in our history, the, we have declared a state of emergency for LGBTQ people, even in California. Signatures are being collected right now for three anti-trans ballot initiatives. And so we know that our community is under attack. And the anecdote to hate is community. Mm. Coming together, giving folks help, finding other people like them, and giving everyone the opportunity to be a part of fighting for their own rights and dignity. And so what I think makes the center so special is we're not just there to offer services, though of course we are there for that, right. but we're also there to offer hope and to offer pathways to empowerment for everyone in our community. Well, and I want to I want to follow up on what you said about um, how it's not just about crisis, but uh, and and so we'll we'll come back to that aspect of the center and its work, but I do want to acknowledge what you've also put on the table in terms of crisis. So young people experiencing homelessness at twice the rate of the general population. Why is that? Help people understand that statistic. You know. We are um, in a moment where we have taken leaps and bounds towards our equality in this country as LGBTQ people. One fights like marriage equality, ended don't ask, don't tell. Right. HIV is now treatable. And every day, LGBTQ youth are still kicked out of their homes because their families are hostile to their identity. And so that statistic, of course, LGBTQ youth also experience poverty, mm -hmm. um, just like uh, straight youth. But the difference is the hostility of homes that still exists here in California and in San Diego. And the other part of the crisis that you put on the table a moment ago is also about the general um, feeling of being under, not just general feeling, the general reality of being under attack in the national conversation. How does that manifest for the LGBTQ population here in San Diego? You said even in California. Uh, and how, how is the LGBTQ community experiencing that and how does the center help respond? You know, I think it's a misperception that California is, um, you know, this perfect place for LGBTQ people, though certainly we have some of the most robust laws protecting our community. California is a big place. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of the regions of California are vehemently anti-LGBTQ. And so studies show that when youth see attacks against the LGBTQ community locally in their state or uh, at other places in the country like Texas or Florida, it has a negative impact on their mental health. Here in San Diego, for youth that seriously consider suicide, that's about 11%. It is 40% for LGBTQ youth. Mm. And so how let's is just, this? Let's just stop. I'm sorry, but I've got to interrupt you and, and, and acknowledge that distinction. So for the general population, youth ideating around suicide, 11%. For LGBTQ, 40%. And that's a San Diego-specific and heartbreaking yeah. statistic. And so what are we doing to respond? The center has two youth centers that have different nights for different age groups from 10 to ages 24. We have one in Hillcrest and we have one in Chula Vista. Mm -hmm. So these youth centers are a safe place for youth to go, find support with other youth like them, but also get access to real mental health services through the center. 
we know that our youth are in a mental health crisis, especially LGBTQ youth, and we have to be there with a series of interventions that provide peer support, that provide support to their families who are on a journey to accept their kids, uh, that we support schools that are trying to do the right thing by LGBTQ youth, and that we have an array of services to help support youth who are struggling with their mental health. So we have leapt so far into the conversation <laughs> so quickly uh, because there's so much to talk about here and, um, and, and we'll come back to it. But I do want to back up for a moment. And for folks who may be new to these issues or are still learning, um, let's start at the basics and talk for a moment just about what LGBTQ is so that they understand the community that we're talking about, the alphabet, um, which maybe in today's society we take for granted, but maybe we shouldn't. So can you just say a little bit about the population you serve? And then I'd love to hear how San Diego came to have one of the largest such centers in the country. We represent the LGBTQ plus community, and that means lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, non-binary, HIV, and immigrant communities, and it means all of our families, given and chosen. So that's, that's who we mean when we say our San Diego LGBTQ plus community. Great. And the, it was actually surprising to me to learn that San Diego had a resource like the center that was... I, I, I would fully have expected there to be a robust set of ser services, but not to have one of the largest centers dedicated to this population in the country. Why do we have it here in San Diego? You know, it's a kind of an amazing story. 51 years ago, L.A. started the first LGBT community center. Mm -hmm. And there were about a group of 12 people here in San Diego who were also a part of the LGBT community who said, we got to go up and see what this is about. And so they carpooled up to L.A. They experienced the L.A. center. And on the drive home, they decided they were going to start the second LGBT center <laughs> right here in San Diego. That was 50 years ago. And so wow. the center is one of the oldest LGBTQ organizations in the country along with the National LGBTQ Task Force, the LA Center, and Lambda Legal. So really a special history, but we're one of the oldest and largest yeah. LGBTQ centers in the country, but there's also something unique about the center that isn't so positive. Most other major cities have a ton of LGBTQ and HIV organizations. The center is the main service provider for LGBTQ people in San Diego. Mm -hmm. So we keep growing to meet the extraordinary need of our community, um, but we're the only major service provider for a population in San Diego County that is at least 270,000 people. It's an extraordinary part of the fabric of the San Diego community. and. Yet, it sounds from an organizational standpoint that you sometimes feel lonely in terms of having colleagues and peers. Is that right? Yes, and I think the need is overwhelming. There mm. are um, a whole host of pretty amazing grassroots LGBTQ organizations. There's a small center in Oceanside, and we have San Diego Pride. But in terms of being a large-scale service provider, we're it. Mm. And the need is, is, is really incredible, particularly when it comes to youth, seniors, um, and really trying to have an intervention into San Diego's housing crisis. 
and I want to come back to young people now that we've we've covered some of the basics. But I maybe I I should start with a younger you, and and talk a little bit about your journey to coming into this role, and um, how you came to to head the center. Six months before I came out uh, as queer in rural El Centro, California, uh, Matthew Shepard's life was taken. And those images of him haunted me, and I was convinced that I would have the same fate. And so there so was Matthew a... Shepard, just so that our listeners mm-hmm. remember, um, was a young man who uh, was murdered uh, in a particularly gruesome fashion in Wyoming, and while on a visit there, not not from there, and became a national symbol for violence against. Uh, the LGBTQ community at that time. So it was in the context of this six months before you came out that happened, and yet you came out. And, and yet I did. There, there seemed to be no other option than for me to be who I was, and there was also uh, maybe a freedom to feeling like it would happen to me too, so might as well be who I was. Mm-hmm. So I came out swinging at 16 in El Centro, um, and I immediately started a Project Pride, an LGBT support group um, at my high school. At 16. At 16. Um, and I started. You, you might know, have been an organizer by <laughs> birth. I was. I was <laughs> yeah. an organizer uh, early on, and you know, having the opportunity to connect with other people, share our stories, and build community and belonging in mm-hmm. such a hostile environment, I decided then that some way, somehow, I didn't know what the job title would be, but I would do this work for the rest of my life. And Kara, how how was it coming out in El Centro? Uh, You know, 16 is a scary age to begin with. The community was um, not one that you would expect to be welcoming to you. you. And you clearly didn't feel like you belonged. But how did the community receive you? You know, it was a really difficult journey to come out at that time um, in that place. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for so many LGBTQ people, our stories are mixed. We have stories where we experience hostility Mm -hmm. to who we are and, and pain and hatred. And yet there's always a group of people who found us. And for me, um, that was my basketball team. I came out to my basketball team um, the night before a big tournament. Um, And we were all sort of sitting in the hotel room and I told them and um, I had a girlfriend at the time and I told them about her. Um, And so for me, um, coming out was also about falling in love. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a really joyful um, and incredibly empowering way to discover who you are through falling in love. And when I told them, they were so accepting. They had a lot of questions and they didn't have all the right language. Um, But I'll tell you one thing. The next day at our game, I played the best game of basketball I've played in my whole life. Because my team was with me. And so they insulated me with their um, ongoing support, the entire team, through that time. And so I think um, it's a story about the power of community Mm. and the power that belonging can have to give you resilience in adversity. I love that story. And I, I think about you as a young person swimming in a sea that you feared was hostile and finding your own small group that um, managed to protect you and and be with you just by accepting you, which is so often how we get on in life, right, in general. So you 
go from this 16-year-old organizer and decide to to become an attorney uh, and to go into this work, but what brought you to the center in particular? I mean, it almost does feel destined, but <laughs> we probably should talk about it a little more than that. Than that. Well, you know, I got to San Diego um, by getting accepted to the, uh, to to UC San Diego, yeah. and so as soon as I got there, I started organizing, and I started organizing at the intersections of my own identity. I was organizing with Mecha, I was organizing with the LGBT group, I was organizing for women's rights, um, and I did my first uh, Justice for Janitors campaign uh, at that time too. And so I was learning so much about organizing in different communities. I decided I'm going to do this work. For forever. And so, you know, there aren't that many jobs for paid organizers at a college. Um, and so um, I was very lucky to be Planned Parenthood's grassroots organizer. I learned so much about statewide organizing. Um, and it's just, you know, one of the most powerful Planned Parenthoods in the country is here in San Diego. Phenomenal organization. I learned so much. And then I went to work at the center as their organizer. And around that time, um, marriage equality really started to hit. And so I knew I wanted to go to law school, and I postponed that journey um, when I was asked to run the No on Eight campaign. The No on Eight campaign for marriage equality is still one of the largest ballot, in ballot initiative campaigns in United States history. It was 42 million on each side. We lost 52-48, um, and I went to law school the next year with a broken heart. Mm. But... I experienced in San Diego the thousands of volunteers who came to fight for their own rights and dignity and the allies who came and said, this is wrong. This is a civil right. Gay and lesbian people, LGBTQ people deserve the same rights under the law. And this is wrong. Sign me up. I will call. I will knock on doors. And so the courage and the inspiration of people coming together um, to make real change um, had such a lasting impact impact on me much more enduring um, than that heartbreaking loss. Um, and I went on and did some other things, but I have never seen a place like the San Diego LGBT Center that helps people who need help today and fights to make it better in the region for everyone at the same time. It's really hard to do direct service and advocacy work at the same time. And I haven't seen anyone in my career that does it better than the center. And that's what called me home. You know, I was going to ask you what um what gives you joy in this work? Because what I, what you're radiating, uh, and hopefully it comes across on on an audio, uh, what you're radiating as you talk about the work of the center is this joy about the work you do. What is it that gives you satisfaction in the work? I believe with my whole heart that every single person in our community deserves to be valued, deserves to get help when they need it, and deserves a place where they can regain hope. Mm. This is how belonging is also a movement for change, for equity, for love, and for justice. And I see through everything the center does on a daily basis, that work being done. Every day people come to the center because they're on a journey. They're coming out. We have seen uh, people in their 60s come to the men's coming out group for the first time. Seriously? Absolutely. Wow. Every that week. Is... <laughs> we have seen parents who are on a journey to accept their transgender child, and they joined the Mi Familia group, which is a group of uh, Latino and Latina and Latinx parents who are on a journey to accept their youth. 
we see people, youth coming out, everyone's on a journey and the center gets to be there at mm. this time when someone is learning to love and accept who they are and they're also learning the power of community, what it means to experience other people like you for the first time and to truly know that you are not alone. No, I, I, as I hear you talk so uh, effectively about concepts of belonging and the type of society where people are allowed to be who they are and accepted for who they are uh, is not how it feels at the moment. And, you know, as I listen to you talk about that, I feel this sense of pain in myself just thinking about what many people in your community are experiencing, which brings us back to the crisis. And I, I think we have to round out our conversation about that um, because so much of the narrative of the country at the moment is one of vilification of various types of people. And and the LGBTQ community seems to be suddenly in that target frame in a way that maybe some of us didn't expect to see again after the passage of the Marriage Equality Act. And you know, we're suddenly back in a place where you mentioning Matthew Shepard is jarring because it feels like, yeah, this can happen again. We know some of it is politics, but what do you think is happening in the country that is driving the othering that is the opposite side of belonging? You know, there's this concept of blowback that when you take a big step forward as a community and certainly marriage equality and the fall of Don't Ask, Don't Tell were those huge steps. There's a group of people who got together and organized and ran focus groups to say, how can we? Um, push back against LGBTQ equality. And what they learned is that transgender people, non-binary people, and particularly transgender youth were the easiest messages to uh, uh, hurt further progress for the LGBTQ community. So it's not at all accidental that marriage equality happened. We take these huge leaps forward and there's an organized, concerted, intentional, and well-funded effort to roll back LGBTQ rights um, and specifically to target transgender people, um, their dignity, their health in a way that defines so many people in our community as fundamentally less than human. Um, that's what's happening, and it's heartbreaking, and it's tragic, and it's wrong, and we need to fight back against that narrative, and we need to fight for the dignity of every single person. And you said, and I thought this was fascinating and such an important point that maybe adults forget, but you said that when young LGBTQ people um, see or hear about a an attack against a trans youth or a political rally where trans youth are being targeted, even if they're not trans, they feel that themselves. Can you explain that dynamic? Yeah, studies have shown that when there are attacks against LGBTQ people, kind of no matter where they're happening in the country, youth receive these messages on social media and it has a, an instantaneously mm. negative effect on their mental health. Our LGBTQ youth are, are vulnerable in a number of ways, their mental health, their housing status. Our youth deserve safety, support, and acceptance at home, 
in community and at school. And it's just not always true that all three of those line up mm-hmm. for our youth. And so there's there's a vulnerability and all the attacks that are happening are penetrating the, the social media of LGBTQ youth and negatively affecting their mental health, um, which, is, which is really heartbreaking. And so we are seeing more and more youth who are coming to our youth centers. In the last year, we have served twice as many youth through our youth centers um, because youth are coming to experience support and to experience empowerment through community with other youth like them because of what's happening externally. Are there any stories of these youth that particularly inspire you? Oh my goodness, every day. (laughs) Every day. I'll tell you uh, one of my favorite stories there were two youth. Uh, we opened the South Bay Youth Center, the first brick and mortar LGBT organization in all of South County almost five years ago in February. And um, there were these two youth who came uh, right when the youth center first opened, our first year in 2019. Uh, they were from different schools, but ended up coming together for a support group on the same night. And they became friends and they were on a journey to accept themselves and to learn more about themselves. They became good friends, uh, kind of supported each other through many of the challenges they encountered encountered at home and at school. Um, and they got married. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? They fell in love. Um, yeah. we, we do a lot of education around healthy relationships and healthy communication yeah. for our youth. Uh, they fell in love at, uh, uh, in, their, in their early 20s. They're, they're about 24 now. Um, uh, and they just got married. <laughs> so that youth, um, youth coming together, looking for support uh, from different schools, connecting um, over really a historic new safe space mm-hmm. in South County. Um, falling in love uh, and now having the legal right to get married um, and start their life together is exactly why we exist. That's fabulous. I love that story. (laughs) The assumption that I think our society makes, which is a it's a mistake we make on every front. You know, we assume that if we can categorize a group of people that they're a monolith. Uh, and the LGBTQ community is is not a monolith. It uh, represents many different folks, um, including folks who are at different points of the age spectrum. And and can you talk a little bit about about how the societal dynamics that play out in the rest of society play out for the LGBTQ community? It's this odd dichotomy. We exist in every racial and ethnic group, every zip code, every religion, every age group. And yet when our community is is attacked, we get homogenized. And so we are so deeply diverse. Um, This beautiful, you know, particularly in San Diego, our incredibly beautiful and diverse uh, San Diego LGBTQ community. But whenever we're attacked, we become homogenized and our differences get erased and we get attacked as a group. And so really... There is safety in coming together both to protect us as individuals and to help build collective power to fight back because mm-hmm. it is just true that we are not free until we are all free in the LGBTQ community. Yeah. And I believe that that's true not just in the LGBTQ community, but generally. That, Absolutely. Um, you know, this is a, a core struggle that our society has. Do you ever think about the work that you do in the context of? of your specific community, um, more broadly in terms of the belonging challenges that the country itself faces and and how you're doing your part to create a more belonging-oriented culture? Yeah, I do. I think about the intersections of our community with every other community all the time. 
And, you know, today our center staff team reflects the full diversity of our community, but that didn't just happen overnight. Um, We know that belonging means that when people walk through our doors, they see themselves reflected in the artwork on the walls Mm -hmm. and in the people Mm -hmm. who are providing services and our advocacy programs. And so over the last several years, we invested in hiring, we invested in onboarding and retention strategies to engage the full diversity of our community. And that meant reducing barriers um, uh, to these communities accessing jobs at the center and also valuing lived um, expertise expertise and lived experience. And so over the course of several years today, our staff team is 27% trans and non-binary. We are 38% Latino, Latina, Latinx, and one third of our staff team is bilingual in Spanish. So today we reflect the full diversity of our community in a powerful way that helps us to be better service providers and better advocates um, for the intersection of our multi-identities. I know from a conversation that you and I have had previously that you don't necessarily aspire to this. Is there a way in which you see the work of the center as being playing a, a leadership role nationally? I mean, I know you're very focused on community and serving your constituency here and doing that exceptionally well uh, and being the best possible advocates for for the community that you possibly could be. But do you see this as contributing to a national conversation? I absolutely do. Mm -hmm. San Diego is a special place in the scope of the LGBTQ service and advocacy work that we do and the unique position we have as both a military town and a border town. And so I'm connected to a group of almost 300 LGBTQ organizations throughout the country. Mm -hmm. Um, There are uh, over 282 LGBT centers. We're connected through this network and there are so many ways that our center is able to support smaller centers. The average organization, the average LGBT center in this country has maybe one or two paid staff people. And so our our procedures, our process, how we built programs, how we think about how to grow to meet the urgent and emergent needs of our community and how to have a place for community to have a leadership role in new programs, how we do data collection, how we do feedback. We did a strategic plan a few years ago and we had 2,000 of our community members participate in focus groups, in town halls, and in surveys to help inform what they wanted from the center. And we didn't stop there. We made sure that we had advisory groups um, and that everyday community members are empowered to build their own support group um, for for their unique needs. Um, And so I think we have a lot to teach and share in this collaborative learning environment in the LGBTQ movement. Um, And that includes both services and on the advocacy side. We are the largest LGBT organization on the border. And we know that the San Diego-Tijuana border is the largest border crossing in the Western Hemisphere. And so I think as we think about our LGBTQ immigrants, and immigrant is in our mission statement, um, we really think intentionally about what our movement can do to support the LGBTQ immigrant community. I asked that question because I really do believe that on so many fronts, this one included, San Diego is has the opportunity to play a nationally relevant leadership role, and that you are, uh, even if you're not. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised at all that you're thinking about it, um, even if it isn't in the mission statement. It's, uh, it's very clearly 
part of how you reflect the role of the center. And I think the diversity of your constituency is important in terms of being relevant to that national conversation because you're, you know, I love your, I love your, what your smile as you say this, but, but you, you know, the population again that you that you serve is reflective of pretty much the entire country. And there are folks from every walk of life and every imaginable background and ethnicity and profession and extraordinary um, what you managed to put together. I, I, I'm curious where you see the next step being for the center. I dream of having a state-of-the-art, large LGBTQ community center, um, much bigger than our facility now. We talk about belonging and how important it is for everyone to have belonging, but particularly for those who have experienced life on the margins. And I think about how in our capitalistic society, real estate matters. Mm -hmm. And our different groups want specific dedicated space for their community. Um, we want a space that is, that is specifically for the black community, for the Latinx community, for our seniors, for our youth, for our AAPI community, for our trans and non-binary community. And in a big enough facility with lots of convertible space, both to provide services, but also to have things like community dances and celebrations mm -hmm. and volunteer and advocacy programs that bring people together, celebrate our victories, and foster joy and pride in being LGBTQ um, for everyone. Uh, a larger space um, and a state-of-the-art facility helps make some of that possible that isn't possible today. So that's a big dream. Yeah. Um, but San Diego has a pretty incredible community that I think will be there to meet that need. It's like an even bigger tent. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's an even bigger, even yeah. bigger umbrella for um, for great things to happen and convergences to happen. I mean, it's actually it strikes me that uh, as you're describing the vision for that center, for that facility, you know, this is not your what was that phrase? This is not your your grandfather's or your you know LGBTQ <laughs> exactly. community. And how does that generational dynamic play out for the community and as you think about a space like that? I think often about our Stonewall generation. We just celebrated 50 years um, of serving our community, our 50th anniversary. And, and so I've had the opportunity to reflect a lot about how many generations of LGBTQ people had to live in the silence of the closet mm who didn't get to chase their dreams or didn't get to say their dreams out loud. I think of the generation that we lost to HIV, mm -hmm. and I think about what's possible for the future today, where every single LGBTQ plus person can accomplish their dreams, can reach their full potential, can be empowered. And so I think about that vision, and I think about the spaces and the programs that can help foster that vision, mm -hmm. where every one of us gets the opportunity to thrive. You know, something you and I, thank you for that, and something you and I talked about uh, before, which I, I was struck by, is that some of your lessons about community and convening came through the experience of the pandemic, which taught many of us lessons, both hard and important. What, what do you think for, for your work were the principal lessons coming out of the pand pandemic that you still carry with you? 
you know, we began during the pandemic to say, what can we do? Our community's in crisis. And it really meant focusing on those who were in desperate need. So we started with building up our housing, our food, and our mental health programs to really help folks who were in crisis. But the community at large was really hurt by COVID because we didn't have the opportunity to gather. And I've talked, you know, throughout our time together about the power of gathering in community, meeting people like you, the resilience and the hope that it fosters. We didn't get to do that. It's not the same with a virtual (laughs) event. And so um, finally, when we could open our doors again, we had remodeled our entire first floor to be more welcoming, to have a giant welcome desk to have paid staff whose job it is to welcome you into the center and get you where you need to go, to have art that reflects the full diversity of our community, art done by LGBTQ, mainly artists of color, and really having the opportunity to say, we've grown our critical programs, housing, food, mental health, but we need to invest in growing the programs where all community members can access and thrive and be empowered. Dances, community celebrations, bringing back our volunteer and advocacy programs and special events that let us celebrate our victory and really foster that sense of pride, of belonging, and of hope in who we are. That work is so inspiring, and it's for everybody in the community. And it was really difficult to do that during COVID because virtual is not the same. And so it was just um, a a real joy to have a big party (laughs) and formally reopen our center, show the community that we had remodeled the first floor based on their feedback, and and, and start bringing back those events that foster so much joy in our community. I I love that. And it's a... in a way, it's a very sophisticated updating of what you experienced on that basketball team, right? I mean, this that that moment of coming together and acceptance and and being allowed to be who you are, and then to add the element of being in community and and with with other folks who are experiencing the same thing, it has to be. Um, I think that's a an important lesson for all of us in every walk of life. It is. And I think so many people um, who do uh, a social justice and who do direct service work were asking themselves, what's the future going to look like? We have learned how to do virtual service mm-hmm. delivery. We taught a whole bunch of people how to use Zoom, including our seniors who called it the Brady Bunch uh, with the pictures. Um and what's next? Are we going to do so much of what the center does on, on online? Um, and of course, we surveyed our community. Yeah. And no, there is a space for virtual support groups. And we do some of that, um, especially for folks who um, aren't able to access transportation or that's a burden. So it's an option. But more than 75% of our people still want to come in person to the center to experience community. And so I think that's also one of the things that we learned during during COVID is um, virtual is a fantastic option. And we want to have it for accessibility but nothing replaces the power of community in person. Yeah. I really, uh, you know, I know Zoom has its has its uses, and, um, you know, we use that as shorthand for all our various forms of video conferencing, but you can't Zoom your way to great community. You just, and, and I think what you're describing is why it matters to be able to have a place where people can gather and, and to have the not only the space, but the but the community that gathers there. What do the rest of us need to know um, or do 
that would support your mission and help make the work of the center easier? We've talked about the vulnerability of LGBTQ youth, but I want to talk about the intervention. Mm -hmm. Studies also show that having one caring adult, whether it's a teacher, whether it's an aunt or uncle, tia, tio, having someone who supports you in your life, one caring adult, is the difference between a youth who considers suicide all the time mm -hmm. and a youth who is um, doing okay in terms of their mental health. And so the power that we all have in society to support the LGBTQ community, to say supportive things, to take the time to learn about pronouns and not assume people's pronouns, um, you know, a lot of folks talk to me about pronouns. I support the LGBTQ community, but I'm not here for these pronouns. It's confusing. It's grammatically incorrect. I don't want to do it. And what I tell those folks is, you know, I, I hear you. And studies show that when you misgender someone, they are more likely to have suicidal thoughts. And when you use their correct pronouns, they are less likely to. So this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of really saying to yourself that I respect the dignity and the human life of someone. That's how important pronouns are. And so I wish people would take that, um, take that point seriously and go on whatever journey uh, folks need to go on, learn whatever you need to learn. We do uh, trans 101 trainings at the center that are free. Everyone's welcome. Some are on Zoom for accessibility. <laughs> Um, I think it really is important that our transgender community and our non-binary community are being attacked every day throughout this country and are being told they're less than human. And the least we can do is take the time to respect somebody's pronouns and maybe save a life. Yeah. I, I think you just answered this question, but I think, you know, one, one of the, I'm going to ask it anyway, because I think it may be helpful to illustrate your point for people. In our political dialogue, which is broken, and I think, as you pointed out, there's sort of a cynical use of polling data that says this is an area of vulnerability where political gain can be had by targeting these labels and, and the real people behind them. But the, there, there is this, this, I think, sense on, on the part of some people that they just don't agree. They just don't agree. They, for whatever reason, it may be religious, it may be, you know, beyond the political cynicism, they have a difference of opinion about how society, what society should accept. And their argument tends to be, I don't want society to encourage this because it, it creates more of, the pro, more of the dynamic that I don't agree with. You just pointed out that this is really about the mental health and well-being of real individuals who are struggling with decisions about their own identity and realizations about their own identity. But how do you talk to people who just don't have room in their worldview for the LGBTQ community, especially as it manifests now in this, in this environment? We are living in an increasingly hostile and volatile world for mm -hmm. LGBTQ people. And so it's hard. It's mm -hmm. really hard. But I want to say one thing that has been a cornerstone from the Stonewall generation through the center's 50-year history. And that is that when LGBTQ people tell our stories, when we invest in community, when we come together to build collective power, we win.
And I think that's a powerful story about who we are, because I'll tell you, those who are most resistant to our community do not have an LGBTQ plus person in their life Mm. who they love. And so the more we come out- Or that they know of. That they know of, because that person knows it's not safe and they're right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right? Trust those instincts sometimes um, in, in society today. And so- we really have to call upon our courage and the support systems mm. like the center to help support people, to tell our stories, to come out, to talk about who we are. Um, I have had so many conversations with the parents of transgender young people who have been on a journey, right? These are straight parents. They don't have LGBTQ people in their life. And they heard from a young from their young child, as young as age five or six, insistence persistence and consistence that their gender was different than what they were assigned at birth. And those parents are so clear that this is happening and they don't have all the information and they come to the center for support. And the person who supports those parents more than anyone are parents who went through that journey two years ago. Mm. And the power of having parents support parents who want to do the right thing because they're seeing it. It's consistent. It's persistent. It's insistent. This young person is telling them very clearly, um, despite not having incredible vocabularies about who they are. Mm. And so I just want to talk about the power of community to support journeys like that, um, particularly with building more supportive homes for transgender youth than we've ever had before at even younger ages. Kara, yeah. I, I, um, there's so much more we could talk about, but I just want to thank you for the extraordinary work that you do and the work of the center. Uh, and it is actually an incredible thing that San Diego has this center here and a leader like you uh, fighting for belonging and making San Diego a leader nationally in terms of that. Do you have any last thoughts for the for for our listeners about how we can build a more belonging oriented community here? You know, I think the center's story is that there is no one leader who has made all the change. Nothing mm-hmm. we have ever done um, has been one person. It's always the LGBTQ community, our clients, our allies, our board, our staff team, our thousands of volunteers who come together to make change. And so um, I would say uh, find a thing you can do to support an LGBTQ person you know. Have a conversation, say something affirming, um, particularly if it's a young person um, or if it's a transgender or non-binary person who receives so many messages um, uh, that are negative about who they are, that attack their dignity. Um, we've come so far in this fight, and yet we, we, we truly have so much further to go. And we need everybody, including our allies, um, to help support um, the dignity, the rights, um, and the joy of LGBTQ people. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful Kara came by to stop and talk about youth inclusion and LGBTQ inclusion in our region. The issues we discussed may feel particular to a particular population, but they're really ultimately about all of us. A few highlights for me, first of all, and maybe most notable, was just the joy with which Kara talks about the work that she does and her own story. I was struck by her sharing the news of what it was like to come out at the age of 16 in the wake of the Matthew Shepard 
uh, murder and to think about how a 16-year-old thought that the same fate was going to be awaiting her. And yet she came out anyway, and she found acceptance in a community of friends who decided to learn from her and grow from the experience. And I, I think that story of coming together in community just resonated throughout her discussion with me, uh, including her reflections about what the center itself learned during its experience of and following the pandemic. Um, what they learned was coming together in community is something we all crave and where we where we find great strength. Uh, and I, I just think that the joy that Kara conveyed in talking about that is something I'll remember long after this interview. I think a second point that is inescapable is how important it is that these issues be made personal. That it is it is impossible to feel indifferent to the plight of the LGBTQ community when you know somebody from that community or when the stories about that community become real. And we see this over and over and over again in human life that it's easy to hate a stranger and really difficult to hate somebody you've met face to face. And making these stories personal uh, is the key to transformation. That it, it is what convinces us that we're not dealing with an abstract policy issue, we're dealing with a real human being. And that for me was actually the third takeaway, which is that behind every single one of these debates and all of the hysteria that seems to periodically emerge in our relationship as a society to the LGBT community and is unfortunately such a subtext of the public conversation again today, is that we are not talking about people with labels. We're talking about real people. And real people suffer real consequences. Karen and I talked about a few of them. The fact that LGBTQ youth experience homelessness at twice the average rate. The fact that youth from that community experience suicidal thoughts at four times the, the, the rate of the general population should be a concern for anyone who cares about kids in our society. And there is a reason that the LGBTQ community is feeling more attacked than they have in years as we witness the, the public conversation really turn, as she pointed out, on the most vulnerable members of that population, young people who are sorting out their identity and figuring out who they are, uh, it, is, it is important and really a responsibility of every adult to figure out and to remember that there are real people and real young people on the other end of any questions we may have, any attacks or criticisms we may make, and of the debate we see in the public sector. And I, you know, I think her point about pronouns, which I know many of us struggle with, um, are is it seems when you think about real people being on the other end of that equation, it seems like the least we can do to respect the dignity of, of others. You know, really other uh, fourth point that she, important point that she made was the idea around blowback. Um, now, we are experiencing a period of blowback after a period of progress on LGBTQ issues, and to some extent this is normal. 
but it is also incredibly dangerous because it provides uh, cover for a certain types of viciousness to find its way back into the public dialogue and into public action. Uh, when, when again, when Matthew Shepard's name was invoked, it was jarring for me because I realized that yes, this is this is on the table again. That we can see attacks on the LGBT community, and maybe not even talk about it in the way that we did back then. Because as Kara pointed out to me in, in another conversation, when we think about the trans community experiencing a rate of about one death a week in the United States, a senseless murder, often a person of color, um, it's because there is a permission that is being granted around that kind of attack. And it comes from blowback, which is normal in a social sense and very dangerous if we don't counter it in each of our individual ways. And that for me was the fifth and final point from Kara, which is how incredibly hopeful she is and how incredibly hopeful the work is. Over and over again, she talked about the type of society I think we all want to belong to, which is a society where you are free to be who you are and you are accepted for that in the same way that Kara was by that basketball team, but by everyone around you, that you are not judged for being perceived as other or different, but that you are embraced for being the full and distinct human being that you are. I think we're lucky to have an entity like the Center uh, in San Diego doing that work and a leader like Kara Desert doing that work, but really the leadership is something that we all have to share in and she generously shared the notion of leadership with the rest of the community i hope that we will accept that charge from her that we all have to do this work together to create a society where everyone belongs thanks for listening join us next time and please be sure to subscribe rate review and share this podcast stop and talk is a project of the conrad prebis foundation it is produced by Crystal Page and Adam Greenfield. It is engineered by Adam Greenfield and recorded in the Voice of San Diego Studios. Thanks again. <laughs>